And as they led him away, the seized one, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore, and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by, watching, by the <clears throat> watching, but the ruler scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him. This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly, I say to you today, you'll be with me in paradise. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for the spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance, watching these things. Thank you, Aaron. The most evangelical of all things is true faith. It's always going to be that way. Thanks, Aaron. I was with a friend this week a few hours before he died. I didn't, I didn't know it would be that way. I hadn't visited him for some time. I told you about him before. He's the one who sang that Dutch hymn to himself on a boat 63 years ago or something. Um, my friend Henry Romaine. Friend is probably too informal of a word in a way. Henry was a bit of a mentor. When I was at uh, the Presbyterian Church, Henry had been an elder there for 54 years. And uh, when I told you a story a few weeks ago, he said that he wasn't afraid of death. He was hoping to make it till Christmas. Didn't come close. Um, his decline was so quick. Henry was 
truly uh, for anyone who knew him and shared the faith, a brother in the faith. He said, as I told you, that God would be with him in his death as he had been in his life, and, and, he, and God was. But the decline was so quick. And to see him on Wednesday, um, I, I, wasn't, I didn't know that he'd be like nonverbal and, and uh, can we get that? Um, that it would be near the end. And then, so I think I visited him around. I'd seen Daniel. I saw Daniel later. Anyway, um, probably just before lunch then, and about 7 p.m., I heard from Elaine that he had died. One of the things that strikes me as I spend time with people just before they die, and, and unfortunately, but it's not all unfortunate. Um, I was with someone for a lunch meeting not long after seeing Henry, and they said, actually, it was Jim. <laughs> and Jim said, uh, it must be tough to, and I didn't know then that he was so close to death, Henry. I said, and like most people would, Jim said, oh, that must be tough part of your job. Is It's not the tough part of, of my job, really. The tough part, like anything, same with you guys. It's all, if, if it, you know, it's the finicky stuff that's tough about any work, if people are at each other. And this church is pretty good for that, by the way. But being with someone, particularly somebody of faith, in the hours or minutes or even at their death, is also a great gift. It really is. And... But almost every time, one of the things I'm struck with is how even as I pray for them and I put my hand on their forehead and, you know, uh, Henry wasn't really saying anything, but sometimes when I whispered a prayer into his ear, he would kind of stir a little bit. And um, One of the things that strikes me is how I can't get where they are. Right? You're always praying like, you're praying into this uncertainty or unknown. Uh, there's something about death. There's all kinds of reasons we avoid death. Mostly we're just afraid, right? And this culture that we live in uh, wants to deny death and is somehow obsessed with it at the same time. But I, I couldn't get to where Henry was. And I had to trust and pray and know in my faith that our Lord Jesus Christ was there. I tell you the story because death is hard like that. And if you've had to let go of loved ones, you know the finality of it in a way that I couldn't communicate from here. It is brutal. And that's all there is to it. It can't be romanticized. It is something that our scripture says will be done away with in the fullness of things in Christ Jesus. But as thinking about the death of a loved one or a friend can in its own way stir our minds to help us to get past some of what James said as as he prayed for us, that we hear this so often, Jesus died for us, that we could just let it go past. So if we can think of something like this, it sometimes helps us to hear again, Jesus Christ died for us. Into that darkness into that place where none of us can get this side of life. It's hard to consider the reading for today, especially verses 44 to 49, the end, when it talks about darkness coming over the whole earth, the criminals crucified alongside of him, 
and then it was midnight at noon. I was like in my faith that, you know, the earth trembled at the crucifixion of Christ, though many people in history and even at that time were not even aware of what was going on. It shook the heavens and the earth. And it became dark in the middle of the day over the whole land and the temple, you know, the curtain torn from top to bottom. And the words of Jesus Christ before his death, him entering into the presence of his Father in a way that we couldn't get there, this side of life. Into your hands I commit my spirit. The living word. Jesus is and remains the living word. Jesus teaching, Jesus healing, Jesus loving, Jesus serving, as we've considered in these weeks. But all of it was leading to this. This thing that we have difficulty understanding, and certainly our culture would. All of it was leading to Jesus dying. It comes together here, all of those other things. Love and mercy meet at the cross. Did ever such love and sorrow meet? You sing that, right? Do you, have you asked yourself that? Did ever such love and sorrow meet? Or thorns compose so rich a crown? This is where the love of Jesus is fully disclosed, but it's hard to look at. It is the key to our Christian faith, though. You've heard before, we've said it this morning, Jesus died for my sins. Is that it? Can I tell you a secret? That's not it. It's not all. You don't fully understand Jesus' death if that's the summation of the thing. He did die for your sins. We need to understand that. But Jesus' death is simply is, is more than simply, and this is a, great Christian statement in, in my thinking as I declare it. Didn't come up with it. I just declare it. Jesus' death is more than simply somebody had to pay. See, I think sometimes our, our world would push away from that to some degree. There's truth in that, but it's not the whole truth. Jesus, we've talked about it before here. Jesus isn't simply God's whipping boy. He's the fullness of the character of God. Listen to Philippians chapter 2. Whoops, I went too far. Philippians chapter 2. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. It's a good aim. Who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, if you know the NIV, or in this ESV, something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant. We consider Jesus serving. Being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Now this, what's being spoken about in Philippians 2 here, is not fully summed up in Jesus died for your sins. Jesus dying is more, more, it is certainly this, but it's more than this, more than God's punishment. Jesus dying is God's 
fulfillment, the fulfillment of God's love for all humanity. Jesus dying on the cross should be, in your mind, a positive statement of God's love for you, more than simply a negative statement about our own sinfulness. So I have a question for you. And we could just spend, you know, the rest of the time here. You could come up with great and brilliant answers and we could, you know, determine who's the most spiritual by what kind of answer they give. How do you know that Jesus is Lord? Nobody's going to put up their hands. That's okay. How do you know that anybody is Lord? I mean, we have still these remnants of this word in our culture, right? Of course, the most common one probably that people would jump to would be landlord. My landlord, right? It's an old word. How do you know that anybody is Lord? Lord of an area or a residence or a group of people? You watch Downton Abbey and they say all the time things like, my Lord. What is this a statement of? The person that you are referring to in this way is higher than you. Right? And you are to respect the distance. They, by birth or accomplishment, social standing, they have more. In other words, the term itself is a term of distance. Now, it might be friendly. It might be, there might even be love, depending on the relationship. But the distance is maintained. And if you watch something like Downton Abbey, you know that's very, very important. And what was the, what was the main head butler guy's name again? Somebody quick. Thank you. It's wonderful, the things we know. <laughs> Can you recite Romans 5.8 for me? Nope. <laughs> What's the butler's name again, the head guy? Carson. Yeah. Anyway, I know I... Well, I didn't really know it, but... You... you if you watch that show, you know that it was as important to him, maybe more so, to keep the distance than it was to the people upstairs. That's how you know somebody is Lord. Merit and achievement is what now has taken that over. And of course, that entire series was about how the world was changing. So now, how could we understand somebody as being Lord? You can still have this concept that they lord it over you. But now we are told, though don't really believe this, we're told that it's a meritocracy, right? That you achieve this distance by merit, by achievement. But the truth is that you can get it simply at times by having a lot of money. Not necessarily of your own doing or making. My question to you is how do you know that Jesus is Lord? Christian faith declares some of these things that would remind us of the distance between us and God. And it's not an unhealthy concept to have in your mind. That God is other than us. That he is holy in a way that we could never be holy. That his ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. But how do you know that Jesus is Lord? Jesus is pre-existent. He's the fullness of God's character. He is equal with God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But how do you know that Jesus Christ is Lord? The answer is one thing. He died for us. Entirely different than the concept of lordship that you would have in this world. Now, if you take the concept of lordship that you have in this world and you try to superimpose it onto Christ, you will do your Christian faith a disservice. You will misunderstand. All of those things about Jesus Christ are true. He is above all. He is over all. 
He had equality with God. But he did not consider that something to be grasped or used to his advantage. Instead, he died for us. I always find a way to get my favorite theologian into most sermons. He puts it this way. He says, we know that Jesus Christ is Lord. Actually, I added that bit. Here's his quote. Because the Son of God exists with us in our fallen and perishing state. No other Lord will do that and maintain their Lordship. We know that Jesus is Lord because he dies for us. He is with us. So you have the Christmas story, right? You have Emmanuel. It sounds, it feels so good at Christmas time. The baby in the main. Emmanuel means God with us. But you don't know fully what God with us means until the cross. Light into the darkness at Christmas for sure. But in our Gospels, the Easter narrative and the crucifixion narrative take up much, much, much more space than the Christmas story. Christmas story is only in two Gospels, and they're brief. If we want to understand what it means that God is with us, we understand or we seek to understand the cross. Firstly, he is with us by the way of downward mobility. Now, as soon as I say downward mobility, you guys think economics and money. That's what our world has conditioned you to do, to think about that and judge one another based on some of those things. I want to take the term out of the shackles of that simply economic understanding. But I do, there is still some of that in there, in that our culture and your lives, this is how you, most of you, actually many of you would judge me, and and it can be how we judge one another, is that our culture has made a God, and we'll make it a small g, obviously, of upward mobility. You are going this direction. Now, attached to that whatever measurement you want, the default one right now is money. There's one that's um, wrestling with money in our culture right now, and that's because people are seeing kind of the emptiness of just wealth, just piling it up. The one that's wrestling with it is happiness. So if you have upward mobility in terms of you know financial security or happiness... We've made gods of those things. Climbing becomes a task. There's an upward pull to your life. And if you feel like your life isn't going that way, we mentioned this last week, then you can feel pretty terrible. From a very early age, this is Henry Nouwen saying this, from a very early age, our holy task, H-O-L-Y, holy, the secular holiness, from a very early age, our holy task is to make it in this world. Upward mobility. Now I want you to picture what that does. And some of you would know this, and some of you would feel sometimes a self-satisfaction at this kind of movement. What the upward mobility does is there's a large degree to which it separates you from other people. So if you just think of everybody together, like a big mass of people all standing on one level, and then somehow you get more you, in a sense, rise above. There's a distance created between you and others. That's not a full explanation of it. But often upward mobility, not always, but often upward mobility can can pull us away from others. The way of Jesus Christ, Jesus dying, is a way, please understand this, or seek to, is a way of downward mobility. 
Though he was rich, yet he became poor. Though he was strong, yet he gave up his power. Though he was above all, yet he took on flesh and became one of us. Rather than rising above all of the rest of us, the pull was downward by his love. And we know this when the Spirit of Christ is in us. We become free to be strong when we are weak. And none of you in your human nature want that. You want to be strong when you're strong. We become free to be strong when we are weak. Joyful when we are in pain. Free when we are captive. And rich even though we're poor. I want to show you something else in this first with us point. If moving upward can pull us away from others, it does so by defining the rest of people as, well, It doesn't always have to be like we're above. Sometimes we can look at the rich with disdain. But we define others by being poor or being rich or being a success or being a failure. Or in Christian understanding, we can define others by, well, they believe in God or they don't believe in God, right? All these things that make them different than me. I'm not rich, so they're rich. So there's this, you see how that creates a distance all the time? Or I believe in God and they don't. They're somehow over here. Someone hasn't received the gospel. My question in this is all of those distinctions. How does God see all of those people? You have your answer in scripture. How does God see the rich person that's different than you? How does God see the person who doesn't believe in God like you do? How does God see that terrible sinner who just keeps making the same mistakes over and over again? and even rails against Jesus Christ. Romans 5.8 gives you the answer. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In other words, God sees you first and foremost, and others, not by those distinctions, but by who that person is and could be in Christ. Downward mobility. We become, just like we're saying, you, are, you can now be rich though you are poor. We now become, as we understand this downward mobility, free to love as Christ loves. And that's our gift before the world. Not to be better than the world. Not to be more right than the world. But to be free to love as Christ loves. So now look at that person. That sinning person. Do you want to look down on them? Well, it would be better for you if you weren't a Christian then. Because Christian faith won't allow you to look down on them. He is with us in that he chooses love over fear or hate. In our culture, it's not, I don't have to draw out to you that person is separated from person by political ideology, by religion, right? By uh, whatever it is, sports team, that's, just, that's ridiculous, but it's true. There is between person and person in our culture, and Christians contribute to this, which is 
devastating to our faith at times. But there is distrust and discord and disagreement. People are on different sides and all these problems. There's a word for it that's good that isn't often used, and that's disunion. So where union is bringing together, disunion is like things are broken apart. There are two things you can do when you know this disunion with another person. I've got them as three words here. I'm putting hate and fear together. But there are two things you can do. You can love or you can fear, which will ultimately lead to hatred. When you know there is a disunion between you and somebody else, you can love or you can fear. Now here is where Jesus Christ is God with us because he chooses and lives love rather than fear. The negative choice of fear and hatred, someone we disagree with. Then you do, and I'm not, now you, maybe you'll be more careful around me. You don't need to be. In, in, even a church this size, people like to tell each other what's wrong with the world. I mean, I do it too, because I really actually know what's wrong with the world. And if you want to know, I'll tell you. But, and so it's amazing that even after talking like this, people can come up and say just what's wrong with everybody else might be in church, might be in the world, might be another political understanding, whatever it is. These terrible people over there, if only, right? This is the negative thing. Someone you disagree with, somebody you think is against you, and you make assumptions. And what's remarkable to me is how well you know those people. You know what motivates them. You know what they want. You know how dangerous they are. It's incredible. Wow, you sure have those people figured out. Now, let me tell you what you're operating on there. This might be hard for some of you to hear, but it's true. Fear. Do you believe God is sovereign? Do you believe that this is headed to victory in Christ? Then what are you afraid of? Well, they're like this. And in the end, what you get to is that they, there is somehow within them. Now, you wouldn't really say this to me, but I can hear it at times. They are in some ways unworthy. They're an enemy. When Jesus dies, he identifies with us while we're sinners In other words, the distance between us and him is at its greatest at that point, and it's much greater than the distance between you and whoever you have identified as your enemy. Guaranteed. The distance between Jesus Christ and you is greater than the distance between you and whoever you've identified as the problem in the world. And what does he do with that distance? He loves. And why do you choose fear? And how do you think that fear is going to bring about anything of God? The idea of worthiness in the love of Jesus Christ shown to us loses its significance. Jesus never died for you because you were worthy. And when we understand that, we say, thanks be to God, hallelujah. He died for you because of his love. So why are you treating others according to their worthiness or unworthiness? 
Those other people in the world, they're not the problem. It's that we haven't fully understood the love of Jesus Christ. The mercy of God makes the whole problem of worthiness seem laughable. No one person, nobody, could ever be worthy to be loved with such a love. Jesus chooses love over fear and hatred. And if he chose fear, well, then there'd be no salvation for any of us. And in this, now here's the gift for you, dear Christians, most, most of you Christians here, not all, but we're all on the same ground before God. But here's the gift to you, particularly if you call yourself a Christian and you understand this. As we, un- as we seek to understand this, we become free to love people with this same kind of love. And it's incredibly liberating. I'm not anxious all the time. It doesn't mean you're blind to the world and the reality. Finally, Jesus Christ is with us in that he is the judge of our sin. This is one that people often wouldn't think of in this way. Jesus is with us as the judge of our sin. And it's, it's a misunderstanding of, of judgment as a Christian term to think that God throws thunderbolts from a distance. I mean, you can pick up some of these images if you read the Old Testament poorly. But you have to read it poorly. And, you know, I'm always, I don't know why this came into my head, but I'll say it. Because if it came into your head, then you know it's, you know, no danger here. Well, you can decide. People talk about other, other scriptures, other holy books in our, in our world that other religions would consider holy. And they say, look how terrible and how violent this is. And our book, Read Poorly, can be pretty violent, too. And if you read the Old Testament poorly, you'll come up with a God who likes to judge people from a distance by throwing lightning bolts. The trouble with that is you can't, you can't even square that if you read the Old Testament well, right? Slow to anger and abounding in love. But you certainly can't hold that understanding if you seek to see Jesus Christ. If you want a God who throws lightning bolts against enemies... Please understand this, and I say this not as condemnation, but in invitation to something better. If you want a God who throws lightning bolts against enemies, can I tell you, please, you want something less than Christian. If you want a God who wipes out the bad ones and sets things right while keeping his distance, then you want something less than Christian. I mean, at its worst, you want an old pagan deity. Some God that has to be appeased, right? If you can't wait for God, and we all have this, so please, don't think I'm just saying, you know, you terrible people. I, I, this is something that many people of religious faith, faith can struggle with. But if you want a God, and we all want this at some times, who wants to sh- show others how right you have been, <laughs> I mean, some of, some of you just want that in your families. God, please just let them know that I'm right. If you want a God who wants, that, that you want that God to show others how right you have been all along, you, you do understand, right? That's a less than Christian desire. We're human. This is how God shows his love for us. We read the verse already. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Now here, let me tell you how I can experience this in my devotional life. This isn't now to say this is super biblical or scriptural 
I mean, in our prayer lives and in our lives of faith, we get pictures and visions and ideas. Uh, though I'm not the first one to think this way, okay? So at least I have a, a, some company in Christian history. Jesus died once for all, our word says. That's true, right? So it happened. And he said, it's finished. It happened in history. But you know, as I go through this world in my devotional life, and I see somebody who's struggling with sin or addiction, or I see somebody who's caught, uh, like when, when I have to pray things like, how long, O oh Lord, will this family face this situation, or whatever it is. When I see people in great suffering, which no matter, if, if you think anybody can explain suffering to you, then distrust what they're saying. Because nobody yet has been able to fully explain suffering, except we know that Jesus suffered. And he's with us in our suffering. But as I see people dealing with great suffering that seems to have no meaning or purpose on its surface, here's one of the things I do, okay? So forgive me if this doesn't quite fit Christian orthodoxy, but again, I'm not the first Christian to think this way. As I see people dealing with this, I, I do this thing where I say, Lord Jesus Christ, thank you that you are dying for this world. He died once for all. But on this side of heaven and eternal salvation, somehow his gift is ongoing. And as my friend is suffering, Lord Jesus Christ, I know you are with him. You are dying. You are giving your life now. Our salvation is in what Jesus Christ has done for us and continues to do for the whole world. And then what does it mean for me to live in light of this? Oh, that's too good to throw up there yet. It means that I will seek to love as he loves. That's my Christian motivation and my task. The task of the community is to, proc- is to proclaim this gospel and to seek to love as Jesus Christ loves. How does this change how you see problems in the world? How does this change your view of others? Would you be willing to practice downward mobility to do all that you can to come closer to others, not further away from them, to choose love over fear or hatred? And each day the prayer, Lord Jesus Christ, help me to love as you love, to see others with your love as much as I can, and to bear witness to this gospel. Living in light of this will mean that you will truly, truly, And if the church could get around this, man, we would talk about an evangelical thing. That we would truly, truly leave the judging to God. We said that Jesus Christ is with us as the judge of our sin. It is not from a distance. He enters into our fallen and perishing state. That is his judgment. That he takes it on himself. And doesn't leave us alone. So when I say leave the judging to God, I don't mean that you get to go, yeah, because he's going to wipe him out with a thunderbolt. Leave the judging to God because your judgment does great damage in the world. You're judging of others. But the judgment of Jesus Christ demonstrated in the cross is the salvation for us and the world. And then the promise as we end. Here's the promise. The fruitfulness of this. When you are free to love as Christ loved, the fruit of the Holy Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love. 
It's a good way to understand this verse, by the way. Not just quickly list love like with all the others. The fruit of the Spirit is love. That's the grand statement. And then to open it up. Joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and self-control. And some of you are like, even if I could have that last one, it'd be good. But he promises you all of them. You have died with Christ. You have been raised with Christ. You don't need to give in to the way of separation and hate. The fruit of that way is fear and anger and distrust and anxiety. The fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience. Kindness, goodness and faithfulness and self-control. Freedom in Christ. So as I close, I'm going to pray in a moment. I'm going to pray um, an intercessory prayer as well. Because we're going to go right into a response time. You can pray where you are. You can sing. You can go to the back and receive prayer. I will take the offering as well. But before I pray this prayer of intercession and closing the sermon, I just add one last note. And that's that uh, I've told some of you before that that song, Alas and Did My Savior Bleed, that's the At the Cross song that we were just singing. That was one of my grandfather's favorite songs, my papa. Papa Weeb, Abram. And I, I told you before some of you who would have heard this, that not long before he died, I heard him singing this song in German as he went to bed one night. I could hear it on the other side of his room when I was visiting my dad. Uh, my nana had died a couple of years previous. And so one of the things that's interesting to me about that song, I can never get through it. I can never sing the, I can never, ever sing the chorus. I probably could do it at an old folks' home or something like that. No, I couldn't, because then I did the same thing. I'm here with you singing it, and I like that you're singing it, but I'm really with my papa. And I'm thinking, why did he like that song so much? Because it was a declaration of his faith. At the cross, at the cross, Jesus dying. At the cross, at the cross, where I first saw the light, and the burden of my heart rolled away. It was there by faith. I received my sight. And now, my papa happened to be a pretty happy guy. It was there by faith I received my sight. And now, I'm happy all the day. We're going to pray. Bring some things before the Lord in intercession. Many of you know that uh, Daniel Berge is not well. Daniel has been in hospital since Tuesday and spent uh, really the entirety of that time in isolation for a very, very bad infection that has been attacking all of his organs, effectively, to the point where he had to have his heart shocked on Friday, something like that, Thursday, Friday, Wednesday it was. Um, and uh, there had constant tests. and So we're going to pray for Daniel and for the Berge family. Peter Takas, who I look at the back, he's not here today. Uh, those of you who know Peter, uh, he'll often share with you a verse or a word of encouragement. Peter was in the hospital too. I think he's out now because um, I was getting emails from him last night, and I don't think Peter's the kind of guy to email from his, his hospital bed. So uh, I tried to get a hold of him, but I couldn't. We're going to pray for Peter as well. A couple other uh, things just to mention, and that is that uh, it's, it was Mark McConnell's birthday. Uh, just a few days ago. So happy birthday, Mar. And uh, we have a couple right in front here. Um, Al and Irene are celebrating their 29th wedding anniversary tomorrow. 
So, so I'll pray through many of these things. And uh, then after we pray, I just want to give you some announcements before we turn to the final couple of songs. Let's pray together. Father God, we come before you. It's fitting to consider your word first and then to come before you bringing our concerns, people that we love. We pray particularly for Daniel at this time that you would strengthen him and that this infection would be healed. We pray against it. We know that even though um, we all will face difficulty and suffering, we know that this is not of you and we would pray for your healing. And we pray for your sustaining hand for the whole family. We thank you for Marg and her uh, wonderful presence with us. And we pray a blessing on her life uh, at this occasion of her birthday. And we thank you for Al and Irene and the great encouragement that they are and continue to be to so many of us. And we thank you for their marriage. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that you would continue to be good to them as we know that you will. We pray for our friend and our brother Peter as well, that uh, as he has had many health difficulties, that you would strengthen him. And we add to that list uh, Phoebe Jean, Heather Beveridge, Tara Narayan, and many others. So I'm going to leave just a moment here for you in the silence to lift up your prayers before God. Lord, hear our prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you confessing our sinfulness that we could never be worthy to receive the love that you have poured out. But we accept and receive this love and we pray that we would be able to reflect it in this world. And we know that in you, Lord Jesus Christ, our sins are forgiven. We ask your blessing on the offering as it's taken and we ask that you would give us responsive hearts even as we uh, move to close the service In singing, that you would call us to pray, that we would lift up our voices before you, and that we would listen for what you would have us do in this world. So bless this time, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. A few announcements before we head back to singing. One was handed to me uh, by the aforementioned Marg McConnell, so you know what this is, right? This is like your first note, and don't get freaked out that Christmas is coming. When you hear Mark McConnell and Purdy's, you know Advent is nearing. Here's word for word. I'm going to read as I was instructed. The brochures for Purdy's chocolates and nuts are available in the foyer on the table. Pick up a copy for your family or a neighbor and have a look at these mouth-watering treats. Good ad writing, Mark. Uh, the deadline to order is November 13th. Any questions, see Mark McConnell. A few, uh, the other brief announcements are that tomorrow night we would love you to come and join us for one hour here in this room for a, a congregational prayer meeting. I'm designing it so that we have ten or five ten-minute segments. So we say an hour, but by the, you know how it is, right? So it, that uh, we gather together and pray for one another and for this church and for this world. Tomorrow night, we're calling it Teach Us to Pray, 7 to 8 p.m. Sometimes published as 7.30, but it's actually 7 to 8 p.m. There's a Toonie lunch next week right after the service. And then the final, that's open to everybody. And the final announcement is Tasting Room Theology on November 8th, which, yes, happens to be the uh, election day in the United States. Uh, but we have Tasting Room Theology at J.J. Bean on 17th Street at uh, 8 p.m. The guest speaker is Dr. Michael Bolt. 
if some of you know Michael from Lionsgate, it might not have been in the best of situations because Michael Bolt uh, is a doctor who works in the ICU at Lionsgate, happens to be a Christian, and uh, Dr. Bolt is going to be speaking to us on spiritual guidance in a secular age. How many people in, his, in positions like Michael's, being a doctor in that type of context, get by default, uh, people want some spiritual guidance. So uh, you can reserve tickets today uh, for me, from me for that. We really want you to bring people who don't, uh, don't come to church. This, we really want to try to have this as an outreach, okay? Because they do fill up. So if you can think particularly of somebody that you can bring along, let me know if you'd like a ticket or two. Let's offer. Oh, and yes, the ushers will come forward and take the offering. And everybody else can.